Hi, this is Paul Jenkins, and you are listening to Superior Spider Talk. Welcome to the Superior Spider Talk. My name is Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the editor of GrindMyReels.com. And I'm Mark Ginocchio, and I'm the editor of the Chasing Amazing blog. Thanks for joining us for the 15th episode of Superior Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we hope to look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Episode 15 is a special Superior Aspire Talk and their Amazing Friends edition and is one of the few podcasts we will be releasing over the next week, which includes interviews from the Baltimore Comic Con event that Dan attended in early September. We were lucky to be able to speak to two influential Marvel creators who worked on Spider-Man comics over the years, Ron Friends, who is the podcast you should have hopefully already downloaded, and Paul Jenkins. In this episode, we'll share our interview with, with Paul Jenkins who is a wonderful writer behind the series Peter Parker Spider-Man from the early 2000s and created some of the best Spider-Man stories ever told, like The Return of the Green Goblin. If you want to skip to a specific section, just use the chapter selection errors on your player. And also, if you hear this sound... Oh, do we love that sound? (laughs) Please check out your iOS device for a link to an article, video, or image to enhance your listening experience. Of course, you can email us any comments or questions you have regarding this podcast to superiorspidertalk at gmail.com, and we'll do our best to read and answer them on the show. And by do our best, I mean we will. Also, don't forget to go to our iTunes page and leave us a review. The only way we grow as a community is through your reviews. And then also, don't forget to check our Facebook page at facebook.com slash superiorspidertalk, because it's a pretty, pretty cool place to hang out with us between shows, right? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, it's it's radical. As we often put up articles that we've written and other breaking news about the Spider-Man universe and how to get in touch with us. So party on, Wayne. Yeah. Diddle-oo, diddle-oo, diddle-oo. Spider-Man and his amazing friends, Iceman and Firestar. So uh, let's let's hear about Paul Jenkins, Dan. All right. Well, uh, Paul Jenkins, as many of you may know, uh, wrote the series Peter Parker Spider-Man, and I've always been a huge fan of his work. He's working for Boom now, and he's writing these really great series over there. But uh, the Peter Parker stories really uh, are close to my heart. I actually have uh, written a feature-length movie script that was inspired by one of his uh, stories in that book. And it was cool to be able to talk to him about that and just how much his work has uh, influenced mine. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm looking forward to this. I, I, I'm sorry to say I have not actually read the Paul Jenkins run on Peter Parker Spider-Man. That was like that was early 2000s, right? Yeah, it was. And you're missing out on a really great run. No, I, I, I plan on uh, 
you know, where after listening to this, uh, suiting up with my Marvel U app and, 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 and blowing through those issues because I, I know there's some big stuff there. But, that yeah, that just came at a weird time for me as a reader and a collector. Um, and, you know, kind of going back to that era, I, I have all the ASM issues, obviously, but, like, the, the B titles just really kind of got lost in the shuffle. So, you know, God bless Marvel U and my, my annual subscription. That's all I can say. <laughs> This is one of those times where the B title was way better than the A title, and man, Paul Jenkins really hit it out of the park uh, so many times in this run, and really, I think, does the best job of um, humanizing Peter Parker uh, of, any, of any other writer. It, the stories are so full of heart, and you know, I would say the cries per page are at the highest uh, during his run. All right, well, let's hear from Paul. All right, I hope you guys enjoy. Hello, listeners. This is Dan Gavazdan from Baltimore Comic-Con here with... Paul Jenkins, uh, writer of Peter Parker Spider-Man and Spectacular Spider-Man. I want to thank you for uh, joining us here today, Paul, and I'm really excited to ask you some questions. So, um, uh, when I look at your writing, you know, I would characterize it as some of the most, well, to use the word again, character-based Spider-Man tales. Was this intentional for you, and do you find that your writing stems from the character first rather than events they participate in? Uh, I think that's probably the primary reason for me to be a creator, you know, is I, I, I feel I can look at characters and say something with them. And, the, you know, Spider-Man's such an interesting character because he's got, like, contradictions, you know. He's, uh, he's sort of been given a life goal to have power and to use it responsibly. And, you know, when you put someone in that situation into difficult situations, uh, then you get really, really interesting stories. And the way I used to describe the character was not about whether or not he had a red, a red suit or, you know, whether he was, uh, uh, you know, how, how high could he jump or how much could he punch. Um, I would always create this comparison. I'd say, you know, who, who Spider-Man really is, is he's the guy who wakes up, um, he's got the flu, doesn't feel very well, gets in the shower, says goodbye to his family, sits in traffic for two hours, gets to work two minutes late, his boss yells at him, he has a bad day, still has the flu, gets back home after two more hours in traffic, his wife is upset, the kids are already in bed, and, you know, he goes and he does it again every day. It's that. That's the type of heroism that Spider-Man is. And once you sort of examine that character from that point of view, you can really do interesting stuff with him forever. So I think we just did, we kind of experimented a lot on Peter Parker, you know, we just did stories about real life. Great. Um, you found your way into the comic book industry through the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, can you explain uh, how this happened? Well, I, you know, I, I was I came to America and I was 20 years old and I, I met a couple of guys who had this black and white comic that they were doing in Northampton, Massachusetts. And, um, um, you know, I, I one day I went to them and I said, hey, you know, is there any chance I could get a job with you? Because it seems much more like the kind of thing that I would do. And they said, yeah, you know, like we're really busy now, so we could probably use the help. And um, next thing you know, the thing just exploded. I mean, it was, you know, we did the, the movie and <laughs> the toys and electronic toys talking toothbrushes so I, I ended up at about the age of 24 I was actually a director of a publishing company by that time so I just I, I never had a moment in my adult working life that wasn't
wasn't like rock star crazy like doing it. You know, I didn't work through an apprenticeship. I was working immediately. You know, at that young of an age, how did you like um, adjust to this sudden like I guess responsibility of handling this level of like detail and maybe something you'd never done before? Well, yeah, I think it just depends on the person, right? I, I sat one time on a plane with um, a guy who's like an executive and because we were the Ninja Turtles we'd like fly first class and and uh, um, I remember coming back from the film so I was on the film set and I was sitting next to this gentleman he's a really nice guy and he's a, he was the CEO of Kroger in the, the south coast you know on the, on the east coast and, um, and I said well you know I said I got the weirdest thing I'm younger than all of the employees that I've got you know uh, and I'm doing this and I told him the way I was running the employees and how I was trying to empower the employees you know and, and all of that and he said young man you're doing great if you ever want to leave the world of entertainment give me a shout because I think you could be an executive so I think it was probably personality wise I was doing okay I was helped you know I wasn't I was never overcome by uh, the, the the girth of what we were doing I never I was never scared by anything and I've actually been that way creatively as well. I was always told, "Oh, you got to be scared." You know, you followed Garth Ennis on Hellblazer, or you fought, you know, you took over Spider-Man. And my answer is always like, "This is comics, man. Like, what am I supposed to be scared of? I'm not scared. I'm happy." Is uh, is that kind of attitude like maybe part of the uh, way that you find to relate to the character of Peter Parker? Yeah. If I if I were to say, uh, no, I've I've been asked this question before, and I really like this question. Which character that you've written are you most like? And it's absolutely true. Like, I am most like Peter Parker. That's my guy. Because I, I'm very optimistic. I don't mind failure. I don't mind breaking things. I don't mind things going wrong. I have a set of principles that I adhere to that I stick with. Um, you know, and I, I sort of talked about it a little bit in this last year, actually, because I had really been driven by creativity that's what makes me tick it's what makes me who I am it's why and I, and I always want to be creatively true to myself so when I was writing Spider-Man I was given creative freedom and I could write interesting stories about you know this or the other after a time they would sometimes say well we want a crossover we want it to have these elements to which I'd say I don't think you want me that's, that's not who I am right so I've always been pretty much like him you know I've stuck to my guns I've sort of wanted to do the right thing um, I want to do the right thing right now by the fans I think the fans are getting kind of short shrift because we're not giving them what they pay for sometimes in the mainstream so you know I, I, I'm pretty principled kind of person about that kind of thing um, do you feel like um, maybe like as an artist myself uh, I, I, I often feel like the character is indicative of like art and um, and the, the spirit that fuels art that's never give up um, and responsibility over the images you create. Do you feel the same way? Or? Yeah, maybe. But, I mean, I do think that, you know, people have to kind of look at the, the, the monthly publishing of art and realize that that's a very mercenary type of, of sure. art, right? You know, you have to deliver on time. You must put your comic book in. You can't avoid it. You can't, uh, you know, you can't uh, not show up with an issue of Spider-Man because someone else will do it, right? So you always must deliver. Therefore, some people would say that compromises your art, right? Because you, are, you must deliver. I actually think that I love the limitation of comics, where you've only got 22 pages to put together an idea, or 20 pages now, I guess, apparently. Um, 
you know, and so so it's all short form, limited form creation. Um, but I love creating the deadline. I love creating with stipulations because you can it drives creativity. I did a a, a 48 hour film in Atlanta recently, and it was intro. I'd never done one before. I don't have to do another one. I've done one now, right? Yeah, I did one this summer too. Right, but but I did the 48 hour film, and those 48 hours meant that you must show up with something. You have no choice. If you don't show up with it, you got no film. Yeah. Um, as a writer, uh, what do you feel that you've had to offer with the Peter Parker Spider-Man character that defines your run or separates your work from uh, other writers' runs? Well, it's difficult for me to comment on other people's runs because I, I, I'm not as familiar with them as some people. I'm not a massive co comic book reader. Um, mostly because I do a lot of them, and so I, it's not fair to c kind of comment on work that I've never read, right, or, or I might not have seen. But that being said, I will say that, you know, I think that our approach and my approach was always to try to do stories about people only. It was about Spider-Man. It was about Peter Parker more than it was about the guy in the costume or the costume itself. It's interesting to me that the issue of the book that I wrote that I've signed the most copies of is a story that was set in a baseball game. And it was um, it was all about how he would go to this baseball game with his Uncle Ben on the anniversary of his Uncle Ben's death. Because when he was a kid, when he was first brought into the family, you know, and his parents had died, um, he went to the game and he fell in love with baseball. And then right at the end of the first game, his team loses and he's really upset. And I've seen that in my seven-year-old, by the way. Like, he gets really annoyed if his team loses or something. And then they go on the anniversary, you know, every year they go and they go, and then one year they go and Uncle Ben, the team wins, and three days later Uncle Ben is killed. And so he's always had this thing. And the, the, the reason I brought that story up is in that issue there's only one panel in which he's in, in costume. And yet I've had people come up crying about that issue. I've had people come up saying it changed their life, it changed the way they look at storytelling. And it's a single issue about, and it says Peter Parker Spider-Man on the front cover, but in fact it's actually almost exclusively Peter Parker and his relationship with his uncle. Uh, I was going to bring that up, actually, because it's one of my favorites. But another favorite of mine on your run is number 35. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak about that issue? That's um... Yeah. This is the one with a, with a little boy that, that basically you know comes from a really difficult part of town, a little African American boy, and he and he um, you know he he's a he's got a really difficult life, and so I thought it was really interesting. I grew up on a farm, right? I grew up on a farm. I lived in the West Country of England. My dad was gone when I was five years old. Um, my brother and I were raised by my mum. She never had any money. We, had, we, had, we, we used to pick most of our food from the orchard, right? And um, I used to think that Spider-Man was in London because I didn't live in a city, and I thought he was in London. I assumed that he was me grown up and that when he was flying around, he was in London. And, and so I think that, you know, that story was all about how this little boy, everything that Spider-Man says in that story, when Spider-Man speaks to him, he says things, you know, like education is this or that. And it's all the positive men in the little boy's life speaking with the Spider-Man mask on. And in the end, when Spider-Man unmasks himself to the little boy, he's an African-American guy. He looks like Alan Iverson. He looks like a basketball player with cornrows and all that. And it's, that's what, because to the boy, that's who Spider-Man must be. Great. Um... 
you were uh, writing during uh, what many consider a tumultuous period at Marvel and in the Spider-Man books. Uh, Mary Jane was dead, and then she wasn't. Um, Peter Parker was retired, and then he wasn't. Um, how was it to write Peter in this area? I ask this because uh, I feel like your interpretation was so different than the other books at the time. Well, when we, when we This goes back to this whole idea about being afraid, right? When, when I was brought onto the book, uh, I heard from a lot of people who said you can't write Spider-Man anymore, he's finished. I mean, you're talking about like 1999, something, 1998, maybe 2000. So Spider-Man's finished, really. Okay, but that's that's what people would say. Like, there are no more Spider-Man stories to write, to which my answer was, that's ridiculous. I, I've never written him yet, so how could it be, you know? And what we did was we came in and we did very, very simple stuff. I, I talked with Mark Buckingham about how we would approach a character, and one of the first things that I said to him was, what happened to this bit where, you know, Spider-Man would laugh, where, where I would read it and Spider-Man would make a wisecrack at Dr. Octopus and you'd sort of, as a reader, as a little kid, I'd go, yeah, way to go, Spidey, that showed him, you know, um, and that had gone away. It was, it was very complex. Uh, you know, Mary Jane's dead in a plane crash. Uh, well, don't hold your breath because she's not going to be dead for long. And you, you sort of know this, and I think that that's really undercuts and undermines uh, uh, storytelling when you have these things that you know are temporary, right? Well, I've created a, a sort of a college lecture about this over, over time, and it, and it goes like this. Imagine the story that Stan Lee wrote in the early days in which Spider-Man uh, is trying to get home with a blueberry pie, right? This is my analogy. And he's trying to get home with a blueberry pie, and he turns the corner. Because if he doesn't get home by 7 o'clock with a blueberry pie, somehow the old lady's going to figure out that he's a troubled teenager and he's dressed in a Spider-Man costume, so he better get home. And he turns the corner, and there's the Green Goblin waiting for him. And now you're reading it, and you go, man, I hope that blueberry pie doesn't drop, because if it does, it's going to be hell to pay, right? Yeah. And ultimately, he drops the blueberry pie because he's a loser, and then he gets home and he has to deal with it and, you know, all of this. Now fast forward to the era when I came on the Spider-Man, his wife, the love of his life, she's dead. Only so's Captain Stacy and Gwen Stacy and Uncle Ben, and it's sort of like the tragedies are so piled that they're not tragedies. And you know it's temporary, it's, it's ephemeral by nature, you know, it's just wait because uh, uh, Mary Jane's coming back. So I kind of would say... How is it that we care more about the fate of a blueberry pie in 1964 than we do about the fate of his wife in 2000? That something went wrong. We blew the we blew the character. It went it went sideways. So we got back to the core of writing Spider-Man, and it was um, you know I wanted to write a story about why is Peter Parker. You know, why does he have a sense of humor? Well, he has a sense of humor because his Uncle Ben and he used to play practical jokes on the old lady. Why, you know, why, why this? Why that? Because, in fact, if you go all the way back to my last issue that I wrote, it was called The Final Curtain, and we actually wrote a premise in there that had never been written before, and I don't think it's really been touched on since, was that it wasn't his Uncle Ben that led him to be Spider-Man. It wasn't that. It was that the last thing that happened to him when his parents were alive was that he was in a school play, and he, and he, and he failed. He got stage 
And when that happened, um, he never got to show his parents who he was going to be. So when he lost his parents, he never he he could never. He was always going to be a superhero. It just might have been that he would have been a politician or a teacher or somebody else. He was always going to be Spider-Man, whether he had a radioactive spider bite him or not. He was always going to be a hero. That's really interesting. Um, getting back to what you were talking about the blueberry pie, which I love. I love this <laughs> analogy. Uh, I would I would attend this college <laughs> lecture. Um, but uh, what do you think makes something like Gwen Stacy's death permanent and Mary Jane's death not? Like, well, where, what it broke in between there? Gwen Stacy you could say is this like breaking of innocence it's the first love right it's something that i think stays uncle ben dying stays because uncle ben's this catalyst for him being this person it's the the comparison that you can draw between having responsibility and power and that's like the mantra and so it makes sense when you lose gwen stacy it's like this beautiful blonde girl you can never You've lost something. You can never tell her that you love her to her face again because you lost it. You lost your chance, right? Yeah. So it's this loss of, of, of opportunity. It's the loss of our childhood. Um, you know, uh, as young men or women, we all fall in love for the first time and we've got this crush on somebody. And, and, you, and as, as a grown-up, you think back to that one person that you loved and you go, oh, man, I wish I'd told them how beautiful they were or something. So this is what this guy's lost, right? Okay, so now that's done. And now we've covered that. So now what, what are you going to do? Like the death of the wife is, of, of Mary Jane is um, it's, it's something that you sort of say it's an event. It's a thing that happens. It's not a character. Uh, a, it's not a constituent of the character now. This is just some event. Well, these events, you know, we can't really get rid of his wife, can we? She's, she can't really be dead because we need her for another story. So let's bring her back. Well, at this point, it just gets ludicrous, doesn't it? So then the death has no meaning and the, even the interactions have no meaning. I wrote Mary Jane and Peter Parker as a married couple, right? And, and they, they said, oh, we've made a mistake. You know, we've made a married. And I said, well, why don't you make them like a loving married couple instead of this cliched married couple? At the time that I was writing Spider-Man, I was getting married to my nigh-perfect wife, right? So my wife is like unintentionally funny. She does stuff that makes me crack up even every day. I love my wife more than I loved her the day before. Why couldn't we write that couple? Because every time I saw them written as a married couple, it was always this naive argument. You know, oh, I can't tell her the truth. Or, you know, like, whose version of marriage is that? It's, haven't you worked out that maybe some married people are like really happy? And because this guy has heroic qualities, and because he is a hero and he can he, he can do good things and he has this like real strong, intense personal nature, why don't we write him as the the the, the successful married guy that has a successful marriage that communicates with his wife and doesn't lie to her? I read those two characters. I didn't like them. And it, it works best when they're like happy together. I yes. guess Straczynski's uh, run on the marriage was like really great, like the loving couple. You know, I, I, I wanted to say that I, I actually put very real life things that happened with my wife. I used to put them in the book all the time. Yeah. There, there's this one time where she, we were at, uh, my wife's kind of a funny person, and we were, when we were first dating um, was when they were doing this thing where you could actually just kind of check yourself out. So she's like, stand back, you know, I'll show you how this is done. And she starts checking us out. And it was like an episode of I Love Lucy because the conveyor belt broke and it sent all of our stuff off the end of the conveyor belt. <laughs> and so she dropped the eggs and she's trying to put, she's like, come help me, help me. I'm like, no, you're the expert, right? Like, you go ahead and you, you know. We put that word for word pretty much into the issue of Spider-Man and the fans loved it. Like, that's 
a really funny scene between him and Mary Jane. It's a real moment for Mary Jane, a character that I think has a real lack of real moments. That's right. And yeah. she, why should she? Why should she be this cliched, you know, shrew of a wife that won't accept that he could be Spider-Man? She doesn't have to be that. She could be supportive and loving, and they could communicate. That's much easier to write and more fun to read. How important uh, is hu uh, humor to your, uh, or humor to the Spider-Man character to you? Well, I mean, you know, I touched on it a little bit. Like, Mark Buckingham and I, when we took over, we had this conversation. We said, look, I don't want to dissect it too much. I don't want to overanalyze this stuff. But what's wrong with it right now? Like, what, what do we need to do that hasn't been done? And one of the things that we both missed was the idea that, you know, he would make me laugh out loud, right? Um, so we started devising all of these things. Now, Bucky and I just ran into each other last night, and we were talking about this. I don't know if there's ever been a moment in my life that has been funnier than the conversation that we had. It, I was, it was like 4 o'clock in the morning in Atlanta, where I was, 9 o'clock in the morning where he was in Great Britain. And um, we started coming up with ideas for things that would be funny. And at some point, one of us says, you know what would be really funny is what if he had a fight with a gang of mimes? <laughs> yes. And... We got into this whole idea about him fighting this gang of mimes, and we were coming up with ideas for it. And my sides were hurting. Like, it hurt to, to have this conversation. And Bucky said, you know, it's too early in the morning. He said, I'm dying over here. This is killing me. This is killing me. Like, this is really funny. So we did the gang of mimes. We did him trying to... We did him fulfilling a promise to his wife where he tries stand-up comedy. Yes. And he's great at it when he fights Dr. Octopus, and then you put him in front of a microphone, and he was terrible at it, right? <laughs> we did um, a, a scene where he's singing... Whoa. He's, we did a scene where he's singing... Um, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody in his apartment by himself while he's stealing his friend's ice cream. And his towel drops and he's completely naked just as the friend and his girlfriend walk in and they're like, I did not expect that. And they kind of shut the door. And we did these like comedy sequences and we did them for a reason because I wanted to read that stuff. I wanted to like this character again because I didn't like him when I took him over. Yeah, welcome to Baltimore, by the way. Yeah, it's gunshots. <laughs> um, what was it like working with uh, Mark Buckingham and Humberto Ramos in the book. Do you have different tactics on how to approach each partnership? Or yeah, Bucky and I were a bit more collaborative, and, and you know what we did was we had theories about what works. Like it's, 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 there's something very funny in there that people have never understood. Um, so we caught a rash for the creation of this character called Typeface, right? <laughs> and we recognize it. It was one of the it was one of the crappiest characters ever created for Spider-Man. But you have to understand that we we intentionally tried to create one of the crappiest characters ever created for Spider-Man. Yeah. Because we said, well, what would be like one of these things that will just get under people's skin? And they go, oh, no, not that. Oh, this is great. Typeface, right? He's got type all over his face. Let's do that. So <laughs> How we can pitch that to an editor. Oh, we didn't have to pitch in those days. They just yeah. let us do They were so, they were in bankruptcy. They were so shot. They, they knew that we were successful. They went, just do whatever you want to do. Okay. So we start doing the typeface story. I hand in the script. Mark and I work out what we're going to do. 
they call us up and they say, well, where's the alien crossover? And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And they said, there's supposed to be an alien crossover this month. Didn't you get the memo? And I said, no, we didn't get the memo. <laughs> so we had to insert a crossover with these aliens right in the middle of this story that we were doing anyway. <laughs> so this thing became a complete mess. But even the mess was a success because typeface was so bad that it was kind of brilliant. You know, like people were saying like, oh, blimey, what were you thinking? And we're like, we actually kind of knew that typeface was, it was very innocent. It was very silly. Yeah. So, you know, in those days, I think they just gave us carte blanche to create. Now, when Umberto and I came on, we did this uh, series called Death in the Family, and it was, it was this four-issue go- goblin story. And it was really hard-edged. I mean, in this story, they end up, like, locking themselves in a warehouse. And the goblin says, that, you know, if, if you kill me, you can get out and save your family. If I kill you, I'm going to kill your family. That's really, really extreme. Yeah. And in the, in the end of it, Peter, they, they end up, like, so tired that they sit down and they laugh with each other. They're like, "This, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're, we, we're destined to kill each other. And then, you know, Spider-Man kind of sets them straight. And, and it ended with... Norman Osborn going back to his, his building and it's implied that he committed suicide. I was going to ask you, I've heard rumors about that. He committed suicide. Yeah. Now, we didn't show it so that, that we weren't killing Norman Osborn so they could be used again, uh, but I thought that that was almost like the definitive Spider-Man go- Goblin story, like Spider-Man wins. You can't, you, you can kill me, you can kill my family, but you'll never make me hate you because if you, I hate you, I become you and I'm not going to be you. Therefore, go ahead. Go ahead and kill my family. And, um, you know, so that was basically where we were coming from, you know. How do you define uh, Peter's heroism in your books? Well, obviously, you know, I've spoken a little bit about, like, why I think he's a hero. And I think he's a hero because if he had not been bitten by a spider, he still would have been this hero. Always. It wasn't the circumstance of being bitten by a spider that made him a hero. It's it's just like taking the DC character Two-Face, right? When I wrote Two-Face, we did this book called Jekyll and Hyde, and it was about the fact that this guy had some underlying problems. And and so being splashed in the face with acid does not turn you into a supervillain. You know, you were always out. You know, there was something wrong with this guy to begin with. And that's the same with Spider-Man. I think that, you know, the story that we'd written, uh, you know, that I was very proud of was that he probably was always going to be a hero because of the nature of his personality, who he was raised by, how he was raised, the various things that he was always going to do. So how do you define heroism with Spider-Man? Yeah, I think it's probably, if I were to say, Ralph Macchio, my editor, probably put this to me one time. I said, you know, where does he, where does he go with this thing? You know, you can save a building full of people or you can save that you know cable car full of people but you can only save one and and ralph said it's spider-man he has to try to save both of them and i said you know you're right that is how he is he's he he can't accept that 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 one lot of these people has to die he will try to do both you know so that's kind of the way i approached them um your books to seem uh I don't know if this term is uh, is commonplace, but evergreen uh, to me because of their loose association with continuity. Um, do you do you feel like the best stories in comics are the standalones? It's what I'm good at. It's why yeah. I want to do. It's why I want. It. I, I think they're accessible to a new audience. If they're evergreens, right? And and this is what I think is killing this industry right now. Is is in the mainstream is, you know, are just continuity-driven, self-referential books that that really have no meaning to your average person. I could take a person that's like my wife, right? Uh, n- not my wife, because she's not really that into comics, but I could take someone that might be interested in comics. 
and I could give them a you know a continuity laden crossover issue four of nine and say good luck with that and they would hate comics forever or I could give them a single issue that was well written and well defined you know um, I got a lot of compliments for this this single issue that we did and I did loads of single issues but there was one that we wrote about a, a kid with cerebral palsy and and he had, he had sat on a roof, and, and he, you know, he, he was basically watching a fight between Spider-Man and Morbius, the living vampire, right? And, and, and he was taken up to the, the top of the... And he would watch New York's cityscape, and he'd watch the sun go down, but he was alone in his body and his thoughts, and in the end, Spider-Man kind of comes back and says, you know, I'm really sorry, and he takes his mask off to give the kid a gift and say, I'm, I'm a person like you are. And the, child, the kid says, you know, and at that moment I felt sorry for him. And how does a kid, you know, it's like really heroic of the kid to feel sorry for the able-bodied superhero. Yeah. But he, he saw the weight of the world on this guy's face, you know. But I want to read that story. I want to read something where I have to work out, you know, uh, yeah, it's really cool because it's got giant robots in it. I want to read a story like that and then put giant robots in it so it looks good. Yeah. You know? And that's what I think we're missing. I think we're falling away from storytelling at its core where you, you're really interested in the people in it. Now we're interested in the events. And I think the events seem to kind of come across as though they're written in order to set up the next event. Well, I don't want to read that. I want to read something, that, just a single-issue story that lets me understand the concept. And so we did that intentionally with Spider-Man, constantly. I love the idea of going into like a grocery store and picking something off the spinner rack and just reading it and loving it. That's what I did as a child. And I, yeah, I, miss it. I don't see why we can't do that again. We should do it again. And now we have an gr- even easier platform to do it. We have a digital distribution method. Like, yeah, yeah. 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 So um, what does it mean to you that you've been a writer on Spider-Man? I'm, I'm not the <laughs> I'm not the best person to ask that because I'm not really that impressed by anything. I mean, you know, we uh, my my friends and family that know me know that I have like very weird kind of not I, I don't try to be a weird person, but I have odd principles about certain things. One of the principles that I hold very highly is that I've never been to an award ceremony, even though I've won a bunch of those awards. <laughs> uh, because I just don't believe in them. I don't like the idea that I could go along with five other people. So we're all, all six of us are up for like best writer or best issue or something, and then five of us leave as if we're disappointed. You know, there is no measurement of what's best, and so I don't go to award ceremonies for that reason. Um, what does it mean to have written on Spider? I'm, I'm proud that we we. I did it for five or six years. Uh, there's a little pride in there that, you know, I stayed there so long and wrote some good books. But it's not, oh, yeah, yeah, I got to write Spider-Man. It's, we did some good stories. That's yeah, all I yeah. care about. It could have been The Darkness. It could have been Batman, Flash. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. It, yeah. It's not something that I strive for. I don't care about the characters. I care about the characters as, as I'm writing them, you know? Okay. So um, before we go, um, I want to ask uh, where can my, our listeners find you either online or what kind of work do you have coming up? Uh, follow me at my Paul Jenkins on Twitter. Um, I'm working almost exclusively right now with Boom. I'm doing um, the Deathmatch book, which I love, and issue 11 that I just wrote is, like, awesome. <laughs> I'm, like, really excited about it. Um, I'm doing uh, another couple of series with them that we're going to announce over the next few months. I'm writing a novel. I am chairing an advisory committee for the governor of Georgia. Uh, I am uh, working on digital and interactive. I'm working on film over there. I'm, I mean, I'm just doing a ton of stuff. But if people kind of want to see what I'm passionate about, um, 
um, come over and see what I'm doing with Boom. There's a series that we're doing called Deathmatch, and Dragonfly, who's the main character, it's pretty obvious to see who he really is. You know, you know, you're in the space, I mean, you're interviewing me about Spider-Man. It's pretty obvious who he, he's he's an analog for. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's that character. Yeah, yeah. I've read it, and I, I agree. <laughs> Um, well, great. Thanks again for joining us here on the show, and um, we wish you the best of luck in the future. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks very great. much. Spider-Man and his amazing friends. I want to say thanks again to Paul Jenkins for taking the time to speak to me. I really appreciated it, not just as one man talking to another man about Spider-Man, if, if that's a thing, uh, but but also as like one artist speaking to another. I you know I, I write screenplays and and talking to another creator was it was really inspirational to me to to, to hear his take on on both art and uh, and the character. Well, Dan, I. I, I... You know, really think that you did a bang-up job at Baltimore again. I'm sorry that I couldn't make it. I really feel like I missed out on a, on a, on a great time. And, you know, we had such a good time together at Comic-Con. I mean, it would have been good just hanging out with you, even if we didn't have to do work. So, you know, way to, way to, way to uphold the brand and, uh, you know, make us all proud. And, you know, golf claps and slow, dramatic 80s movies applauses for you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I wish you were there. I actually ran into, like several um, of fans of both your site and of our podcast. So if you're listening right now, a special shout out to you again. And um, I hope you had a good time at the con as well. And for those of you who don't know where to find our stuff, Dan, why don't you take us home? Of course, you can find me on Twitter at at Dan Gavazdin or on my blog at grindmyreels.com, which got a fresh uh, facelift over the past couple weeks. Well, how about you, Mark? You can find me at www.chasingamazingblog.com, my home site, all through September 50th anniversary Avengers and X-Men tie-ins. So this is Mark Waxing Poetic about some of his favorite um, or best to write about Spider-Man and X-Men Avengers team-ups. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog. You can like me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Jason Amazing. And you can find me on CBR's Comics Should Be Good blog, doing the gimmick or good column. All right. Well, uh, you can find all of our Superior Spider Talk podcasts at superiorspidertalk.podomatic.com or find us on iTunes by searching Superior Spider Talk. And if you do, please leave a rating and comment to let us know how we're doing, and we'll read it on the air. You can also send us any opinions on these comics discussed today in the interview or any questions you have for us to superiorspidertalk at gmail.com. And again, those will be addressed on the air as well. And don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash superiorspidertalk. I actually gave away a book this week on Facebook, so it pays to go on Facebook because you might get some digital downloads. That sounds like a plan to me, Dan, and, you know, before we, we leave for good, let's remember our good friend Ron Friends' advice. With great podcasts must also come Superior Spider Talk. <laughs>